Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. I'm, I'm used to kind of sitting where you are, so it's a new experience for me. But um, when Reuben asked me to speak, um, he asked me to speak about something that I'm passionate about. And rather than uh, Revelation 12 and all the dragons and things, I, I figured I'd let Reuben tackle that next week. Um, I thought I'd, I'd speak about something that I am passionate about, and it's relationship. And so uh, some of you may know I'm a, a counselor and also a counselor educator at Laidlaw, and um, one of the things that that means is I'm passionate about relationship. Um, one of the things that I've noticed Reuben saying the past couple of weeks that I've appreciated is that Scripture is, his, is God's plan of redemption. It's not a propositional rule book. It's not a right or wrong how to do life sort of book, but it's God's plan of redemption. And I think it always strikes me that that redemption is a relational one. God's trying to bring himself back to us and bring us back to him. There's trying to, he's trying to connect us, to reconnect us. And the passage that I want to go back to in this is Genesis 3. So we've kind of gone from Reuben talking about the already and not yet of Revelation, and we're going back to the beginning in uh, Genesis 3, and we're going to take a look at what happened in the relational breakdown of Adam and Eve and God, and why we need this redemption, and how God actually approaches us uh, within this, this chapter. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to take it out, uh, we're going to read the first uh, 13, 14 uh, verses of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, when I, when I was asked to preach, uh, this is a new thing, like I've said. So I I contacted uh, one of my friends that just went through um, his MDiv program back in the U.S. And I said, Brian, do you have any tips for me? Um, I'm preaching next Sunday. And he said, yeah, I've got one. Um, A mentor of mine said, when you're preaching, what you need to do is you've got to have this one point, and everybody said that this week. You've got to have one main point. And he said, what, what this guy told me is you, you tell a joke okay, to wake everybody up, and then you tell your main point and really drive it home. Okay? 
So I'm going to attempt to tell a joke today and see how this works. Um, you can tell me after the service if it works or not. But if you imagine our, our beloved Pastor Reuben going out and visiting one of you on a, on a Saturday morning, um, and he goes up to the door of the house, and he can, he can see that somebody's at home. So he knocks on the door, and nobody comes, and knocks again. Nobody's coming yet. Knocks a third time, still no one's showing up, and he figures, well, I, I'll, I'll just leave my card. So he writes on the bottom of the card, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into in him and dine with him, and he with me. Well, that next Sunday, as he's sorting through the offering plate, lo and behold, here's the card that was on the door. And somebody's put a little response on it. Genesis 3.10. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. (laughs) Because I was naked. So I hid. So there's my joke. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, this statement really shows us something. It's the culmination of this chapter, right? There's something that has shifted in the relationship between us and God. God, up until this point, has been a a provisional, has been generous with the provision that he's offered. Everything in the garden um, is is beautiful, is good, creation is good. He he even sees uh, with Adam that it's not good for Adam to be alone. Adam's not even aware of that, but God is. And so he's provided Eve, he's provided a companion. And something has shifted that all of a sudden God, God's presence, his very presence, causes Adam and Eve to hide. He's no longer the God that they knew prior to their eating of the fruit. Um, and what we see is, is God responds with these, these questions. And I love these questions. Um, I think they're, they're very redemptive in the way that God asks. Um, he asks, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Um, it's not just a, a where location. But I I hear him saying, who are you? Where have you gone? Why are you hiding? The second question he asks Eve is, what have you done? What's what's happened in life? He's really wanting to know these things. And as a counselor, I I often work with these questions, with clients that come in, or even with students that I'm teaching. There are these questions of where are you in life? And what is your story telling you? Um, What has happened in your life? Um, the other thing that I'm seeing in this passage that often occurs to me when I'm working with people is how does the relationship break down? Well, well, part of what happens is there's this erosion between the boundaries of who I am and who the other person is. There's kind of an erosion of self, I would call it, um, and an erosion of the other. So suddenly this boundary between I have different thoughts, feelings, um, ideas, and you've got your different thoughts and ideas becomes a reality, right? Um, this erosion of self is almost a quality of we're separate as people and we're also bound together, right? We've got our own unique personalities. We've got our own unique thoughts. But we're, all, we're also bound in relationship. And we can go to either end of those spectrums. And I've got a couple of examples here. Anyone know who these characters are? Yeah? The Sneetches? Okay, it's, they're, they're from a Dr. Seuss book, okay? And they're the Sneetches that live on beaches. And you can see that some of the Sneetches had stars on their bellies, right? And to, to the Sneetches, this was a pretty important thing. 
Something about the stars made them a little bit better. You can see by the guy on the left there, he's standing proud. I've got a star on my belly. Whereas the other one, without a star, isn't feeling so good. Well, what happens in the story is a man comes to town with this machine and decides, hey, you you can put a star on your belly if you pay me a certain amount of money. So guess what happens? The Sneetches, without the stars, go and they, they get stars on their bellies. Well, all of a sudden, the Sneetches that previously had the stars say, wait a minute, we can't tell who's who here, right? Well, the man with the machine says, no problem, I've got a solution for this. I'll, I'll switch my machine so that it takes stars off your bellies, right? And so you can see where this is going. Two or three cycles of this back and forth. And it's almost the sense of, again, that separation and binding that starts to happen in relationship. Initially, we want to be separate. We want, we want to think, hey, we're better than this other person. Um, and what starts to occur is somebody tries to almost assimilate or, or take over and say, we need to be the same. But that doesn't really work either because there needs to be this separateness and there also needs to be a relationship that we're together. Next example, anyone know who this is? The Borg, yes. So if you're uh, any Trek fans out there, um, this is one of the typical villains in Star Trek called the Borg. And the idea is that it's this machine that takes over every organism and connects them to kind of a central brain. Okay? And so th- the saying in Star Trek is resistance is futile, right? That this, this machine is going to come and take over every living object and make it all the same. So again, you see that this separation between one person and the other person becomes blurred in a sense, right? Well, as we go into Genesis, uh, I see this happening in this chapter, and I think it's the nature of sin, is there's a relational breakdown. And the idea um, of Eve being separate, Adam and Eve being separate from God, is blurred a bit. So let's dive back into this passage. The first thing I want you to notice um, is that there's a flip-flop in the hierarchy of creation that's happening. Um, back in Genesis, um, it's actually Genesis 1. I realize my slide is wrong here, this next slide. It's Genesis 1.28. Um, we get this command that God says, um, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature. So there's this command to rule over creation. Right? The hierarchy is God rules over all and we are to rule over creation. Well, the very first statement in chapter 3, the serpent, somehow, creation, has almost come up, right? And is dialoguing with Eve and is suggesting things. And almost suggesting that Eve, again, usurp God. So you you can see this hierarchy is almost flipped on its head from the beginning. Um, This also happens in the way that God is titled. If you look back in Genesis 1... God is translated as Elohim and is, is the mighty God, the God who creates, the transcendent God. In chapter 2, what happens is you get this translation of Lord God. So Lord is added to the God, and Lord is Yahweh, which is the, the personal, the covenantal God of Israel. So there's almost these two aspects of God as mighty, but God as present and redeeming that comes into chapter 2. Well, in the first five verses of chapter 3, 
in this conversation with the serpent, guess what happens? It goes back to this God idea. So let me read uh, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So there's that title again. But what happens with the serpent is he said to the woman, did God really say? So some of the commentators have said, look, there's almost this moving away from God as present, as the covenantal redeemer God in the conversation with the serpent. The serpent's first words are, did God really say? Um, there's almost a sense of he's introducing what I would call relational doubt. Okay? He's saying, is God really this way? Okay? Um, and his next statement, you must not eat any tree from any tree in the garden. Well, that's not God's command at all. Again, the serpent has twisted this and made it a negative thing. Where God's command is you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one. Okay, So the serpent in one statement is taking God's generous provision and transforming it into this uh, very prohibitive sense. Okay, The woman responds to the serpent and she says, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And this unique statement, and you must not touch it. Okay? Again, if we go back to the, where the command is, there's nothing about touching the fruit. And for me, again, that feels like Eve is losing a sense of who God is and what he said. Now, if we go back to that command, um, that command is actually given to Adam right before Eve is created. So there's a sense that either Adam said this command to Eve and she didn't quite get it, or Adam said it in a way that wasn't correct. And I don't know if you've ever played this game. We've got this game in the U.S. called Telephone. And it's usually played in a class where you line up the class, you whisper something to the first person, they whisper it to the next person, so on and so forth. And I don't know if you've ever played that game, but by the time you get to the 20th, 25th person, whatever is said is usually transformed in some pretty crazy, miraculous ways, right? And I think, again, this is something of what's happened in this story, is Eve has taken on and morphed a bit of who God is in this statement. Well, the the serpent responds again by saying, you will not die, and God knows that if you take the fruit and you eat it, that you will be like God. So again, he's do you hear the blurring of the boundary between Eve and Adam and God? There's almost a sense of you can be like God. You can, you can have the star on your belly, right? God is the one with the star on the belly. You can have this, right? Um, verse 6, there's an interesting statement too for me. of When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, it's almost the culmination of Eve's looking at this fruit going, look, all these reasons for us to eat the fruit are good. Why is God holding this back from us? There's a sense, again, God has been transformed into this almost um, uh, prohibitive parent that's saying, no, you can't do this, right? Um, Well, as you know, Eve takes the fruit, she eats it, and then she gives it to her husband who is with her. And I like that phrase, again, because Adam has been gone really, in the first five verses of this chapter, right? He's not present. Or he is present, but he's not actually saying much, right? 
And it, for me, it harkens back to chapter 2 when God says, look, it's not good for man to be alone. In the same sense, I don't think it's very good for women to be alone as well, as you can see in the first five verses, right? Adam seems to be there, but not engaged, not, not really present in this. Um, so when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, we all, again, we know what happens. Their eyes are opened. Isn't it interesting what the serpent says comes to fruition in a way? Their eyes are opened. They know right from wrong. But they also, what happens is this relational breakdown happens. So it's almost like we've traded uh, the goodness of relationship for the right and wrong of propositions. We've traded the tree of life for the tree of good and evil, right? And, and what happens in this is Adam and Eve realize that they're naked. And, and they, they go into hiding because of it. They realize their vulnerability. They realize some of their weaknesses. Much like we tend to realize our vulnerability and weakness and hide. This is the human condition. Um, Westerman uh, writes this well when he says, Man hides himself and God asks, Where are you? But the question about man's conduct is extended to his very being. It's not just a question of where locationally are you. It's, it's about his whole being. With this simple touch, the narrator says that God goes after man who hides himself. When the trial and the punishment are introduced with this question, it's quite clear that the whole process is being directed to the good of man and not to his de- detriment. When man is called to responsibility for his conduct, he's being taken seriously as a man. The creator is taking care of his creature when he goes after him and questions him as he defects and hides himself. So God in this question comes after us. Um, It's not a literal question. I think God knows where Adam is. It's not a rhetorical question that Adam's not to answer. It's actually a question where God is saying, where are you? Let's have some communication here. Tell me where you are. Um, I think it's a question that we should wrestle with on our own. What, where is God calling you today of saying, where are you? Um, who are you? Notice Adam's answer. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. There's something in that question that God's calling Adam to say who he is. And Adam rightly responds. I was afraid because I was naked. I'm vulnerable. I see my vulnerability now. And I hid. And yet notice that there seems to be this focus on I. I did this. I did this. I did this. It's almost as if Adam has forgotten that Eve is there. God is there. He's in relationship. It's almost like the shift has taken place where humanity is now so self-focused with me. Right? And God, in his next questions, to me, brings us again back to relationship. Who told you you were naked? You're in relationship with someone. Who told you that? Have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to? Hey, I'm in relationship with you. He's reminding us, Adam, you're not alone. It's not just about you. You're in a relationship with others. God then turns to Eve. And looks at, engages her shame in what's happened and, and says, what is this that you have done? Even though Adam, in the prior verses, has, has just told God what Eve has done. 
God says, look, I want to engage with you. I want to actually hear it from you. What is this that you've done? Where's your story taken you? And again, as, a, as, a, uh, as people, I think we need to wrestle with that question. What is it that we've done? What is it that we're doing? Um, in a sense, I think we can ask these questions, and it can become a confessional sort of thing. But I, I say that word more as a confession of life, not just of right or wrong, but confession of where we are in our relationship with each other and with God. Well, in Adam's and, Adam and Eve's responses, we can see that sin is, is here to stay, right? Even though Adam rightly responds with who he is, there's something about the vulnerability now of being humans that we want to hide and we want to blame others. You notice that both Adam and Eve blame somebody else. Adam ble- blames God and Eve. Um, and Eve blames the serpent. And it's interesting, I don't know if you've got your Bibles, but in my Bible, the... Uh, the verse where God or where um, Adam blames God and Eve is directly across from the verse in in chapter two where Adam says, "Look, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh." He's naming Eve as some someone wonderful, someone as a companion, and then we see the shift in chapter three, right across where now Adam is blaming Eve, this woman that you put here with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. So you see the shift that's occurred, right? Relationally. Um, fear and doubt continues to be the basis of the relationship from this point on. And continues to be really what we struggle with as people. Lecoq, um puts it this way. The original doubt expressed by the serpent, did God really say, has permeated the entire human reality. An era starts in which nothing is sure. Did God really say? Nothing is exactly what it looks like. No oath is to be trusted at face value. No declaration of love is necessarily genuine. And no commitment is absolutely flawless. So this idea of doubt has been cast. Death, in a sense, has happened. Even though it wasn't immediate, and it wasn't physical death, there's a death of trust. There's a death of relationship. That's occurred. This crescendo into the next story happens. The very next story in the Bible, Cain and Abel. Right? All of a sudden, there's now a literal destruction that happens of the other person. And what is God's response to Abel? Anyone know? Anyone remember the question that God asks? Where is your brother? Right? So again, there's this focus of now it's not just where are you. And what has your life been telling you? But where's your brother? Where's the other person in, that you're in relationship with? Right? So as, as we think about this, for me, my, my passion as I've come to shore is um, I, I want to be in deep relationships. And yet I find that to be a struggle. I find it hard to actually go up to you all and say, where are you? Not just, how's your day? How's your week been? But I, I'd encourage us all from this point to actually go up to somebody and say, where are you? Where are you in your life? Where are you in your spiritual walk? Where are you with your marriage? To ask some of these hard, uncomfortable questions, but questions that really I think God has planted here as, start, as, as part of the, the redemption of bringing us back together. Where are you and what is it that you've done? Tell me a bit about your story. Where have you come from? 
um, I think it brings us back to the larger story of God's creation and redemption within that. Um, I think we can also reflect on this from the viewpoint of God's asking us today. Maybe God's asking you where you are in your family life, uh, in your marriage, in your um, way of parenting. Maybe God is asking you, what, what's happened in your life? What is this you've done? Are you struggling with something? Are you struggling with addiction? Are you struggling with um, work, career? Um, I think God is actually asking us in Genesis 3 these same questions to reflect upon our life and to really look at what, what is God prompting us for. So I just encourage you to think about this. As I close um, today, I want to play a, a, a song as a benediction. And I'm going to put on the screen, you'll see some questions, some reflective questions. And they're all questions from the Bible. One thing that I love about the Bible is it's full of questions. Right? Most of the time when God or even Christ approaches somebody, they're full of questions. They're asking, they're, they're looking for that engagement. And so I'd ask you just to to listen to the song and reflect on the questions as they come up on the screen. Thanks. To him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault, and with great joy. To him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault, and with great joy. To the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, before all ages and now and forevermore. Amen. 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 Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.